Bryce, what are you doing? Trying to, you know, game. <laughs> what? This game is really hard. Pac-Man? Uh, yeah. Dude, you're supposed to be playing the game for next week's episode of Arcade Bookshop. I mean... <sighs> I will. I'm really close to beating this. Right. And what about the book? Huh? We're supposed to finish a book for the podcast, too? Oh, yeah. I finished that last week. Yes! Oh, did you finally beat it? Uh-huh. The first level. Oh, boy. You can listen to new episodes of Arcade Bookshop every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your pods. You'll always find us with a controller in one hand and a book in the other. listening to the Drunken Penwriting Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb James. With me today, Spencer, the Boston Bean Baker Church. That's not very original. No. I didn't say you're a Boston baked bean, though you're baking the beans. Yeah. You ever have Boston baked beans or not? No. They're okay. No, no. They're like sugary lumps of something or other. Today, again, for the third time in a row, we have another special guest, author of NSFW, Not Suited for Work, Mr. David Scott, hey, thank you for joining us. Howdy, howdy. Hey, pleasure to be here. And there goes my dog. Um, and just to let you know, that is, that is my dog letting my dog. As soon as we start recording. <laughs> she hasn't spoke all day, and now she's doing it. We'll let them do their thing. At least one episode, my dog runs under the table and causes ruckus, and he's a Siberian Husky, <laughs> yeah. so he's not like small. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, no. She's she's 30 pounds of all Frenchie. She likes <laughs> to let people know that. Hi, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. He's ready. They're going to the bookstore. Oh, nice. Fun. Because that's what we need more in our house is yeah. books. I get a stern talking to from my wife when I buy more books and I don't read them. I just put them on. I don't even have shelf room anymore. I just got this shelf behind me and one for the office. Uh, here's the trick is you marry a writer and then... You're, you're okay to buy as many books. But now the thing is, my kid's into huge, hugely into manga. Mm. So he's like, can we go to the bookstore? And I'm like, I can't say no because I know he hasn't finished this collection. I have to finish a collection yeah. once I start. So. Well, that's when you get into like competition book hoarding. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when uh, one person's books start encroaching on the others and then you just have a mess. It's, yeah, my wife usually steals my books. But uh, yeah, every, every book purge I've ever done, I always down the road end up regretting. Because, you know, there's some topic or subject I'm like, oh, that might have been, what book was, oh, I gave that book away or I, I sold it, so. I have yet to do an actual book purge. Like, I've gotten rid of a few, you know, one here, one there, yeah. but I've never done a full, you know what, they're all going, all these, the whole shelf, I'm just dumping them, I'm giving them away, I just, 
I can't. No. I just I, I I'll put them in a dirty box in my closet before right. I. <laughs> yeah. I'm never gonna read I'm, these crusty ass '70s Pulp Fiction books. But, but they're mine. They're yeah. mine. Damn it! Nobody will get their hands on my yellowed pages until I'm, I'm I've dead. Got boxes of books and rat turds out in the garage. I'm sure <laughs> that I just like yeah, I can't. One day I might come back and read this book, or I dog-eared it for a reason. You know, the day you do sell that copy for seventy-five cents of just some random obscure fantasy novel. All of a sudden, you find out it's worth $8 million. You're like, God oh, damn it. Can't get made into a movie or something. Yeah, it gets real popular yeah. all of a There's sudden. There's only five copies left. <laughs> I didn't have that happen, but I went to Half Price Books, and I was moving, and I got rid of a ton of them. They gave me the receipt, and they're like, don't lose this receipt, because this is your credit, your store credit. Uh, 24 hours later, I couldn't find the receipt, so I was just like, oh, I gave away six boxes of books. And well, you probably so. only got like a dollar a but you know, a dollar a box, probably. <laughs> it was more than that. It was it was definitely more than that. But I don't know, probably washed it or something. That, that gave me the most random of ideas. Has nothing to do with what we're discussing. But if I had a book just come out, I think a part of me would want to smuggle it into a Barnes and Noble or something and just put it on the shelf. Like if they weren't selling the book, yeah, it just yeah, it goes there and just see what happens. Some somebody did that. Somebody did that on the on the whiskey tit label. Or who was, I can't remember who I was talking to that went into a store and put a couple of books on the shelf and actually did like a fake staff pick. <laughs> and I guess it sold and they just assumed that it wasn't in the system. So they ordered more. And she goes, Yeah, now they carry my book. And I just thought, <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a lot of work to move a couple of copies, but good to know. Good to know. I mean, but it did work. Yeah. That is the main yeah, thing no, to take it, away slightly break the law i don't even know if that's a law i don't think it's a law to just give the store more goods to sell than they carry um, i wonder what that would i wonder what that would fall under i don't like, know that'd be a very not feeling they're actually getting all of the money unlawful giving you know <laughs> unlawful giving yeah it's like hey this mega corporation, we actually gave them, we gave them free product and they sold it for, they didn't have to pay for it, no wholesale price or anything. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know, but I'm going to, I might try that one day. I might check it out. I've got one at Barnes and Noble sitting there that I'm occasionally tempted to go in there and move it from the uh, shelf onto like the stack of like, buy two, get one half off, yeah. you know, signed edition. That's uh, another yeah. thing I would, I would want to do is just go, like if Barnes and Noble did just carry my book, I'd just go and like sign a bunch of copies yeah. or just, you mm -hmm. know, do something stupid. Just like, yeah, that goes on the bestsellers list right. this week. You know, yeah. the bestsellers rack. Well, if you if you do that and tell them, they'll give you little signed edition stickers to put on your book. Ooh, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. One day. One day. So anyway, <laughs> you, sir, as of, was that January you came out with this book? With Whiskey uh, Day? Yeah, I think Jan February, yeah. I think February. February. First of the year. I don't know why I think January. Yeah. Anyway. Because that first month is just dread. Dread. And you just forget Time about no it. <laughs> Just us talking about all the resolutions we're going to fail at making. So we're going to get published in this, this, and this this year. And no, yeah. we didn't even submit. So <laughs> before we get into your book, I was reading a little bit about you. And you have a very interesting journey to me because you were a playwright and screenwriter before you tried your hand at novels. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I tried my hand at novels before I moved into playwriting. <laughs> oh, and it just didn't work out or just... The uh, no, I was, I was young. I had, uh, I think I'd written two books. First one wasn't very good. My second one actually landed uh, at a big agency. I rented it, I landed at Ray Bradbury's agency. Not his agent, mind you. I had the junior agent. And I was 23, like just out of college. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to write, you know, legal thrillers for the rest of my life, you know, and thank God it didn't end up working out. But it was a whole butterfly flap and swings in Japan 
kind of thing. And then the second book, we were shopping around and I started, you know, the time between phone calls with my agent started taking a little longer and longer. And you're like, okay, something's going on, you know, start the slow ghosting. Mm. Um, and then I actually ended up, I had done a little bit of theater in high school and I met, a, I met this guy who's a theater student and we just started, we started talking about plays and things like that. And he was like, hey, you ever thought about writing a play? And let me tell you, Caleb, 90 pages versus 400 pages sounded like a vacation. All dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? A little bit of, yeah. So I pivoted to, uh, I pivoted to theater and I, uh, little did I know it would be the next like 16 years of my life would be writing plays. I would imagine playwriting. I mean, obviously there's going to be not a hindrance, but some issues if you go into novel writing with a background of playwriting because the way you pace would be so much different, the way you lay out scenes, and obviously the descriptions are going to be lacking in the playwriting versus, you know, prose. But I would imagine the dialogue that you learn to write in playwriting would really help. Have you had that experience where you just, your dialogue is just really the easiest thing or just maybe how you have the characters develop because that's what you're so used to? Well, it was, it was interesting because I, you know, I did a lot of research, you know, like I read, you know, a number of plays. I read Glengarry Glenn Ross because I had always, I always thought it was a good template, three or four scenes in the first act and everybody's in the second act and, and just looked at some of the plays that, you know, just started reading a, a shit ton of plays and mostly for the structure because I really wasn't sure like if, you know, like they were doing five acts, two acts, what the, you know, what was going on at the time. It was mostly two acts. But let me tell you, like having that, you're telling the story through dialogue versus you know the internal you know doing soliloquies or stuff like that really uh you know it's like robert Regis is about filmmaking like your limitations sometimes could be your you know the creative the thing that really helps you be more creative and i liked having the uh the constraints of writing a play and again like i said it was you know it's 90 percent dialogue 95 percent dialogue and for me because i've you know done screenplays as well plays are like jazz you riff on the main theme and you go off these grace notes and then it comes back around and math is, you know, or screenplay is like math. Like it has to, you know, this scene has to serve these three functions has to serve this and anything that doesn't, you know, further the plot character or whatever gets cut because, you know, you have to be cognizant of the runtime and everything. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's hundreds of, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to shoot a scene that, you know, is just kind of pretty. Mm -hmm. But with, with a play, you've got that, you know, you've got the wiggle room to kind of play with that. And I really like that. And I also found out that writing plays, I discovered a lot of the characters through dialogue. They would surprise me sometimes with what they said. I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. That's going to take this in a different direction. So, yeah, the characters probably almost unfold naturally, like they're writing themselves at times just because of the mm -hmm. nature of, you know, playwriting, especially when you get the actors involved and stuff. You're like, actually, the way this character was written doesn't really fit how the character is versus, mm -hmm. you know, a novel. You don't really get that interpretation. It's just, yeah, this is the character right. I wrote. So this is how they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, the theater is funny because people will come to the playwright as, you know, like, hey, what does this line mean? What is it? You know, they'll, they'll make an attempt to figure it out and make an attempt to make it work. Whereas, you know, working with the studio or, you know, a big head producer, sometimes you'll get, well, this doesn't make sense. Make it clearer. And then you make it clearer. And then it's like, well, this is on the nose. And it's like, well, what do you want? Right. Do you want something poetic or do you want something perfunctory? You know, but my biggest, my big jumping from actually jumping from playwriting to screenplay was probably the toughest because I ended up getting a movie made based on one of my plays. And subsequently after that, I had a harder time generating a screenplay because I would, I would go back and look at old plays and see if I could adapt them, but they end up still being a little bit too talky, mm -hmm. uh, which is fine for indies back in, you know, back in the day and back in the nineties and early aughts. But that was learning the, 
grammar of cinema or whatever you want to say, the screenplay writing. That was that was much more difficult task than uh, writing plays for sure. Well, I'm glad you mentioned just the budget constraints when it comes to screenplays, because that's something that I think a lot of newcomers to writing screenplays would overlook. Like they don't think, oh, this scene would cost this much amount of money and the studio is not going to pay for that. Like, the, So you just have to cut it, even though it could be one of your favorite scenes if it doesn't move the story forward and it isn't really necessary. Or even if the scene, they you know, say they like the scene and they want, they want it to be in the movie, but for budget reasons, they have to cut it down and it's not going to be the same. Like I can imagine that could be problematic as well because you just have more oh, people I that are more people that are involved in the making of movies and TV shows versus, I mean, you have a crew, you know, a crew and everything for plays, but still, and I have no experience in either. So I would uh, revert <laughs> to you here, but I would think that a play, you have a lot more say than you would in a screenplay. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and, and the big reason for that is there's less money on the line. The, the less money on the line, the more control you have, mm -hmm. right? If you're putting up a play for five grand and you're gonna make your money back on a run, it's, you know, mostly, friends and family chipping in or your, you know, your box office doing that. But if you've got a $250,000 movie or, you know, a million dollar movie or $30 million, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot more people keep an eye on what you're doing and why you're doing it. Cause you have to remember, like if you're shooting, you know, a scene, you got to secure the location, you got to get a shooting permit. Crew's got to work X amount of hours. You got to feed that crew. The actors have to work, the cinematographer, all the lights and, you know, and then getting it and really knowing like, well, how is this going to serve? Is this going to be worth a day? of shooting to serve the film or is it just something that I thought might be kind of fun, you know, which you have to really be cognizant of that when you're, uh, when you're writing something for sure on plays, not so much, right. It's all imaginary. I imagine with a movie, you really have to, uh, put your ego aside because <laughs> for me, like if I wrote something I was very passionate about, and then like a studio or a director just came in and butchered it. Because <laughs> we, we hear all these stories about like movies that why why did that movie become like why was it so bad? It should have been good. It's because the studio and like some producer wanted involvement and everyone had their creative input and it just ruined it. Uh is that ever a problem? Have you had that ever come up where you wrote it, something and you they know, just I, fucked it all up? I've done I've done one feature, but my, my wife was a, a TV writer for a number of years and she switched over to screenwriting here recently. When you hear stories, you have, you know, story execs uh, weighing in because they have to justify their job. They're not generally creative, so they're throwing out stupid ideas. So you really have to learn how to be diplomatic in a room, but you have to learn to really like, okay, what's the note behind the note? Mm -hmm. What are they saying? They're saying this doesn't work and I should add a dog. That's not really what they're saying is they're saying is I need to make him more sympathetic at this point in the film or something. So, yeah, you get a lot of you can get a lot of studio interference and it's because everybody's scared. You know, their jobs are on the line. They have to justify having some kind of input. Uh, what's the saying? Like, you know, success has many, many mothers and fathers and failures or orphans. Mm. Right. Like nobody, nobody takes credit if your film flops. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing in the film industry is those people just love wasting your time, too. I have a few friends who uh, have done work with uh, not even major movie studios, just like uh, like podcast studios, but like they're owned by like NBC or something. And sure. instead of just having like a Zoom call or something to discuss, they fly them all the way to Los Angeles from Spain or England or wherever they are. And it's like, why? And it's like, I was there for a day. <laughs> it's like, I mean, they pay for it, but it just... It's like they, yeah, yeah. they have this budget and they just don't care about, you know, spending or maybe they have to spend it. I don't know. It's just they love wasting people's time. Yeah, it's a flex. It's it's for sure a flex, especially if they want if they think somebody else is interested in that director, then they'll, you know, they'll 
they'll do something really impressive to, you know, get them out. And they're, you know, they're courting. And then when, once you get signed on the line, then it's like, like, I'm the notes, you know, here comes the, no, we're not going to pay for that. <laughs> you know, even though we flew you out first class and put you up, you can't get that drone shot because, you know, whatever, it's going to cost us more money, what have you. So it's a, yeah, there's a lot of courting and a lot of jilting and there's a lot of Hollywood divorces mm. and it happens at almost every level. My, my wife worked on a TV show recently with a A-list screenwriter who I guess fell in love with this property and they optioned it and, you know, it was, it was a go. And so he was, you know, basically running the show and it just ended up, you know, they got so much interference. They were getting these crazy notes. They were having to redo the, the scripts. And then my wife got a ar- call about arbitration because they had taken like half of her script and mixed and matched it with another script. And, you know, on the, the day they were shooting the last episode, they notified the showrunner they weren't going to need his services for the, the next season. Uh, and he was like, well, okay, I have a pay or play deal. So you guys are going to have to pay me. And then they realized that they sent it to him while he was on set, and we're like, no, 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 no. We take that back. We're gonna, we're gonna, no, we're gonna, we're gonna definitely need you. We don't, yeah. Sorry about that. And he was like, yeah, no. Talk to my lawyer. Like it's, it's crazy. It's crazy the amount of bullshit that goes on. What? And it is really amazing. Anything ever actually gets done. I've heard horror stories where some of these people will just shelf a project after it's completed, just because out of spite or just because of a disagreement. And oh, it's like what? you spent all this money and it's just eh, wasted. Well, no, it's a tax. It's a yeah. tax write off. Like so yeah, Warner Brothers was doing that. They shelf like yeah. the Batgirl and a couple other things. And just because like, oh, because if we never show this, we can write it off. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah, it's OK. Well, here's 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 here you go. No streaming service except for Netflix is profitable. OK, Paramount Plus, who paid Tyler Sheridan 200 million for the next, you know, his firstborn uh, mm. Yellowstone project. They're in the hole, I think, 500 million. Disney Plus, their streaming services lose money. All these streaming services lose money, right? Disney's making a real big push now to get shows back into the theater because that's where they make their money, right? And they started putting out some stuff on, like, on DVD again. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, and that's another, that's another thing you've noticed, too, because there were some shows that I was interested in and they got pulled. But then I could find them on Blu-ray online. So now it's like we're coming back to the, you know, the short release and then you can buy it on Blu-ray. But what they're doing is they're, they're writing stuff off. And that really sucks because if you're a writer or a director or what have you, you could have worked solid for the last three or four years and you will have zero credit and you will have zero passive income because you won't be getting your residuals or profit sharing or anything like that. Mm. But the execs, they still have a job because they're overseeing all these productions I mean, I talked to a, a buddy of mine uh, a couple houses down. Is actually one of Nolan's FX guys, and he's like, "Yeah, they get like the complete post, and then just be like, man, eh, eh, let's just write that one off.'" <laughs> and like regarding Batgirl, I don't, I, I didn't see any of it, so I don't know if it was. Somebody said it was just it wasn't watchable, but you know, uh, and they didn't want to muck with the brand. But there's there are shows you've never heard of that have made it, you know, all the way through a full season and just been dumped for a tax write off. Yeah, it's so stupid, and then nobody gets to ever see it. Yeah, yeah, nobody gets the Spiderwick Chronicles. I think they did the first season of that, and it got dumped. But again, you don't know if it's quality, but mostly it is quality because you have smart people working on these shows and smart creatives, and they're just like, yeah, this would better service as a write-off. Or somebody like like Spectrum Charter Spectrum, was this Charter Spectrum? One of those cable companies was going to get into doing originals, and then at one point, after spending a shit ton of money, they decided, yeah, we're not going to do originals anymore. So then they cut the stuff they were working on or tried to sell it to somebody else. So 
it's you, you just never know how quick a production company or a channel is going to you know decide they were going to pivot to something else and then you know if you're caught in that change bye out of a job uh that, that yeah. sucks I wonder how often that happens in the book publishing industry where somebody has their book set to release and then the publisher, for whatever reason, just shelves it. Yeah, we're not, well, not shelve it, I guess. Just say, eh, fuck that book. I'll, I'll tell you, this is, this is my butterfly flaps and swings in Japan story. I had a, uh, I had a crime novel that I got into a publishing company when I was younger. My, uh, my mentor gave me access to like the Crime Writers International Newsletter, which at that time there wasn't anything online. And so I kind of went through and I did some queries and stuff and then... He came back and he's like, you know, I think I think my publisher might be looking for something like this. So I sent the manuscript off, right? And again, I'm thinking like, I'm set. This is going to be my life. And like six weeks later, we hadn't heard back. And he calls me into his office and he's like, hey, the uh, the owner of the publishing house died in a kayaking or disappeared in a kayaking expedition, and they didn't find his body. And his wife took over, and she's cutting all the thrillers and keeping just like the mysteries. And like, you know, two weeks later, I got my manuscript back with just a form rejection letter. So it happens. I don't think it happens like that, but it did happen to me where, you know, I went from something they wanted to a guy disappeared in a kayaking expedition. And, you know, <laughs> it's you, like you something out of a shitty movie. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like it's one of those stupid How things. Long, and, you know, there's nothing I could have done, but it was, it was, it was a hard lesson because, you know, you know, when you're younger, you only, you, you I think even more so when you're older, you feel like you get less bites at the apple, you mm-hmm. know, when you're younger, uh, as opposed to when you get older. So it was, it was definitely a hard pill to swallow. And I think that might've been one of the reasons I, I shifted over into theater because it was, you know, more hands-on a little bit more community and was fun, frankly, you know, you probably have a lot more p- uh, passionate people in theater because they actually care how the product turns out for more than just mm-hmm. money reasons. Cause I mean, theater where it does, it does well in some areas, but it's not like the, it's not like movies, you know, it's not going to bring in millions and no. billions of dollars, but the people who no. do it really love it. And, you know, I think that's always the most important thing is the passion behind something like that. Speaking of theater, no, that was good. Um, when you, you know, have a play come out and stuff, have you ever had one just bomb horrifically? Like you watched it and it was just, it came out terrible or just not what you expected? I, yeah, I had, when I was, when I was playwriting, I'd always kind of try to like, okay, what's my next play going to look like? Okay, I just did this one with a cast of six. I'm going to try writing one with just two people. You know, how do you do that? And I actually ended up doing a Edgar Allan Poe play that, you know, had, I don't know, 12 scenes, full costume and everything. And uh, a lot of the dialogue was taken from letters, from correspondence. So I, you know, got it right. And man, I was pumped. I thought this was, this was the, the milestone in you know, my career playwriting wise. And we produced it. It went up. My the review was like, <laughs> and it would crush me. It crushed me because the, the reviewer had given me, you know, an outstanding review beforehand. And I was like, fuck, like that just it sucked. And there was a couple of showstopper scenes, which were great, but that's not enough to keep the play going. But here's what happened later that year, because I was a, I was a playwright at Chicago Dramatist. They did a fundraiser and they took one of my, one of the, the big scenes, the showstopper scene, and they did it as part of their evening of, but they did it in a big theater. And people afterwards were like, oh my God, that play was great. Like, when can I see it? Whatever. And I was like, dude, it tanked. It's gone. <laughs> and I realized it was the size of the space. We did it in a real intimate venue and you're using, you know, heavy language like Shakespeare. 
And that gets really melodramatic when you're up close to it, right? Mm-hmm. But when you have heavy, big language like Shakespeare and it, they're up on a stage over there and it, it, you know, it kind of fills the area. And we were just like, oh, that's what we should have done. Contemporary clothes in a bigger, in a much, much bigger area, in a much bigger space. Yeah, that's and, always uh, an interesting thing when you go into playwriting is thinking about the venue and the impact it'll have because, you know, like Shakespearean uh, dialogue and language is supposed to carry. It's supposed to hit the person right. in the very back. You have like, a, right. I mean, stand-up comedians have the same thing where, you know, a smaller venue, you cannot play the same as a big venue. Right. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So that was that was an early lesson, but that was a that was a hard one. So that's answer your question. Yes, I had I had one bomb, and that one really hurt. <laughs> uh, what was the name of that Edgar Allan Poe play? It was uh, the Fever Called Living. E. A. Poe. Fun side fact: uh, at one point, Scott Rudin was looking for a Poe piece for Michael Jackson to play. At some point, him and uh, Michael Jackson were talking about doing a Edgar Allan Poe play, <laughs> and I was like, oh my god. My, my play tanked, but Michael Jackson might end up getting this and playing Poe. And I have no idea how I feel about that. <laughs> I would see that play 30 times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> if it was terrible, I'd see it another 30. <laughs> I'll right. just make sure I get a piece of the merchandising and just crank out, you know, <laughs> market get Michael Jackson's Poe. I get, mean, imagine just you know, with, with a little mustache, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you get like an epic Poe line followed by hee hee. Like, <laughs> Oh, that oh man, it's like the things that don't come to be right. Yeah, it's opportunity. Instead of being like a a bright like uh, silver sparkly glove, it'd be a, like a like a gothic black, just but still glittery somehow. Yeah, right. You got the raven covered in sequins sitting up above the door, <laughs> and lights hit it, and it sparkles, and yeah, there's so much you could do. In fact, you know, getting some ideas now for it. <laughs> If only Michael Jackson were still here to be Edgar Allan Poe. Well, you know, a Michael Jackson impersonator would be a lot cheaper. Yeah, that's yeah. true. There's a lot of yeah. those. That's a dream I never <laughs> knew I had till just now. That's, <laughs> you really opened my eyes here. I, uh, I'm excited for something. like. I think that needs to be made. We'll have to have a vote on DPW. Like, Do you want to see this made? We got a guy who will write. We already got the play. We don't even have to worry about him writing it. Yeah, we I'll, just got to cast it. <laughs> <laughs> Start it real shittily, like in the park or something, like uh, Michael Jackson yeah. as it fake Michael Jackson in the park as a Edgar Allan Poe. Hey, AI, soon enough, right? Yeah, yeah you'll, be to, you'll be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot. For couple that, of- I would be okay. I would be okay with that. And I would a- be okay for something like that. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go on an AI generated art uh, app after this, and I'm going to do Michael Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, just to see what it comes up yeah. with, because I'm interested <laughs> now. I want to see what that looks like. And what Michael Jackson do you think they're going to go with? Young Mike? Or the just, you know, ghostly white, long-haired, yeah. scary Mike? Uh, he could be a good, uh, <laughs> a, a big digression. Uh, Phantom of the Opera. Michael Jackson, you, like, the, you know, the last iteration of Michael Jackson, I think would have been a good Phantom of the Opera. Hmm. Uh, anyway, NSFW. Uh, you actually had a book before that, The Fountain, in 2011, and I read you had some good reviews on that. Yeah, we uh, I, I actually self-published it in 2011, and then I pulled it and uh, sat on it for a number of years, and then uh, Miette picked it up and did a, an official release uh, two years ago, in 2021. So that's why, that's why the, the dates are all over the place on that. Well, we were talking, uh, the way you end up coming to our attention, I think it was uh, Miette originally mentioned you, and then Tarina was telling me, about NSFW is kind of experimental. Mm-hmm. Was the fountain experimental too? 
No, the fountain wasn't experimental in that it has, you know, uh, more of an ensemble cast of characters and there's some font play in there and some, you know, images and stuff. Not, it's not like, uh, you know, house of leaves or Maxwell's demons or anything that crazy, but there's a little bit of uh, fun in there. Like I, one of the characters imagines what his Oscar moment's going to look like. And I had a buddy of mine draw up storyboards uh, of what the storyboards for the movie, that scene would look like, you know, just kind of fun stuff like that. But it's, it's funny. Uh, the fountain I don't know if you you know read up anything on it, but it's uh, the premise of the fountain. And there's a there's a reason for this: is that if you take a drink of water from the third floor of the Museum of uh, Contemporary Art in Chicago, you're able to create one artistic masterpiece, like hands down, fame and fortune. But then you may die, right? Mm. So that's the the central conceit of the play is like, well, do you drink? And it follows like a, a critic who's a failed playwright who wants to gatekeep the water, but then he wants everybody to drink it so he can be the final arbiter of like what's good or not. And you have you know this commercially successful artist like Bob Ross, who's like, no, it has to come from within and you have to work things out. And that's where art comes from. And then you have two outsider artists that have done the work, done the time, done shows, but never had that big break. Mm-hmm. And now they're tempted because they can justify they have a body of work. And again, you, as you point out, like this originally came out in 2011 and then it got a relaunch a couple of years ago. The water has now become a substitute for AI. Every argument in the book for drinking the water or against it, you could apply to AI. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's... because yeah, I'm just trying to think of like because we've had this discussion in the last few episodes about AI and just how it affects the writing thing. But I, I'm trying to think what episode it was we did that brainstorming on that story. Oh yeah. But it was uh, along the lines of would you use the AI like if it got so advanced that it's actually doing all the writing for you? Would you use the AI and take credit for the work if, you know, assuming people didn't know that you use the AI? What is like the moral? Like, one, how would you feel with yourself? And two, just what is the morality behind that using something like you're not the artist, really? You're just using right. a tool. But then that's the other side of the corner. You're just using a tool to create the art. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's the, you know, one of the one of the artists that becomes the first hit in the fountain. She's like, well, Johnny Cash took drugs. Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. took drugs jim morrison was on drugs this just like this i just need a helper and uh there's a wikipedia section actually in the fountain which talks about the period of the fountain looking back and how the these contracts were now uh, had a water clause and you had to sign it saying that you did not drink from the fountain water or you weren't hiding it or had it there and and you know then it, it talks about you know what happens about the people that just kind of swish it and spit it, you know, <laughs> they don't die, but does it enhance, does it enhance? Right. And it's, it, it was interesting kind of going through that and thinking about it. And then like, so all of a sudden that, you know, that becoming a really uh, prominent conversation. I mean, if yeah. you're a writer and you use editing software, you're using AI to a degree, it's not yeah. as sophisticated if it's something just along the lines of spell check and, you know, the click on the, you know, instant thesaurus. These are just tools, but then that's what AI is. But I cut the, my line is when it's just writing, like you put in a prompt and it just writes the story for you. Even if you change the work that you get from the prompt, I still, it's still, if it was written by something else, I can't in good conscience consider that your original art anymore. Same with online AI paintings people are winning awards with now. It's like you didn't draw it. You just create, you just typed in a bunch of words and sure you did a really good job with your prompt, but that's not, you didn't do it. (laughs) Yes. But I, but I spent a lot of time working on that 80 word prompt Mm. to get it just so, (laughs) you know, I hear, I hear people say that. I'm just like, God, how many credits did you have to feed it? Did you have to stop (laughs) in the middle of the painting and buy more credits for the program? I mean, it's, it's, 
every tool, right? It first comes in and there's a lot of pearl clutching. And then you have, it was it Isaac Asimov's magazine had to put a hold on their submissions because they suddenly had an influx of similarly titled and subject matter stories. And they realized they were getting, I don't know, a hundred submissions that were just completely AI. Which is interesting you coming know? from his, like a magazine yeah. from him, considering the, right? <laughs> you know, the kind of stuff that he wrote. Right. Ironic there. <laughs> I think we're I think we're breaking some well, some of the, one of the robotics laws, right? <laughs> well, that's, well, like we were um, talking with Miet about the AI. How do you know if you've received it? You know, if mm. like because if it's just someone generated a story or a novel, mm. even you could probably tell because it's not going to be that good, I would imagine. But if they yeah. changed a lot of it, but just kept the mm -hmm. bulk of the story, and all they did was add their writer's flourish to it, how would you know? Like, I don't. Well, that, that's. That's one of the reasons why they did, the WGA had the strike, because they know that the studios were looking to invest in AI prompt engineers or jockeys or whatever, and they would generate outlines and treatments through AI and then hire a writer for maybe for two weeks. You're not getting your guaranteed weeks. So that's, that was part of you know, one of the things that they had to, uh, that the strike was about was how they handle AI and getting AI protections. Because what they can do is I can, you know, Spencer, I can commission you to write a script. Hey, okay, you wrote a script. Uh, it's pretty good, but you know, at the end of the day, here's a little bit of money and we're not going to make it. But I'm going to feed your script into AI and either use it or I'm just going to use it as language, you know, as a machine learning. And because they had to do this clause where they can't feed any scripts in that they don't own into their machine learning. Have you checked to see if your work showed up in those? Because we have a friend who he, two of his books already are in it. And uh, I saw, oh, who was it? Um, you read his word, the Ninth Justice, Ninth Medal or something? Oh, yeah, uh, Benjamin Percy. Benjamin Percy. I was talking to him on uh, Blue Sky, and he he had a post where like they used like all of his books. Yeah, oh, yeah. So it's like if you, <laughs> I, I don't know what you do with that information other than maybe try to sue or just get really mad. It's like, oh, yeah. so now someone can cobble yet, together my specific yeah. writing style. Yeah, AI. I think we yet had, a, like Joey Truman, I think had a book out under his name. That he's like, he didn't write and it sold a few copies. So they were trying to figure out like, you're trying to get somebody who has enough books out that, Maybe they won't notice, but it has enough people buying them that there's a little bit of money. I mean, there's easier ways to make money than that. But well, that was uh, Stephen King, like Stephen King and uh, James Patterson and all the you know the big wigs suing for copyright because they're they've gone like yeah we well, we fed in all of Stephen King's novels and this is you know this is how machines are learning and they're just like yeah that's not an appropriate use. But the thing is, people will do it until they get busted. You know, the AI with the actors is not being able to use the digital versions of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But what happened is, in the last two years, if you were an extra on like a Warner Brothers, I don't know if it's Warner Brothers or not, but let's just pretend it is. Warner Brothers, you would, like, you guys would come, I would tell you to get in costume, put in your costume, and step in this tent, and we're going to full body scan you for continuity for your costume. <laughs> but the thing you signed that day was sign away your likeness, right? So, Caleb, when you come, when you go off and, you know, get your Oscar nomination, I've actually got the rights to your likeness so I could generate my own movie with you starring in it and not pay you a penny. And it's going to be a and, nasty movie. Yeah. And they had yeah, I mean, did some nasty things. things. Two, they, but for two years, they were doing that. For two years, they were doing that. Yeah. You know, they do it until somebody, you know, until somebody tells them no or they get caught and then it, you know, becomes a big kerfuffle. Yeah, well, it's so new, the technology, that they haven't created too many laws because they haven't been, they haven't had to come up with it yet. You know, certain things haven't oh, yeah. happened yet. They can, 
theorize what can happen and they can hypothesize what, oh, maybe somebody would use it in this way. But until it actually happens, there's no warrant for them to make a law, even though they could make a law because they, they're aware of what could be the possibility of this stuff. Um, but they won't because ultimately book publishers, studio execs, these people, if they could, they would make their products without any creatives involved that they would have to pay. So a book publisher oh, yeah. would publish a book by an AI in a heartbeat if it means they didn't have to have any of those pesky authors doing work yeah. and, you know, having their there's, creative there's, input. There's still a few, there's still a few movie stars that sell tickets. Yeah. Right. And that's well, that's the thing. Need, there's still authors who are, they have a no. persona that people know, no. you know, like a Stephen King, you're not going to replace a Stephen King. You can have some uh, AI write exactly like him and write the books he writes, but the author that everyone knows and the name they go yeah. for. Uncle Stevie. Yeah. Who's going <laughs> to, Uncle Stevie made a robot. Yeah. Now, that won't happen. You know, the, uh, like one of, I think my contract for hard scrambled, there's a point in there where they are like, we own the rights to this in any form or medium yet to be discovered known or unknown technology in the known universe. Like there's that kind of language is, you know, they're trying to trying to get ahead of the VHS, you know, Blu-ray home video thing. So it's, yeah, the, that language can be pretty stupid, not stupid. I mean, it's smart for them, but you know, you could argue that AI is part of that too, but, it's it's crazy. Well, any big contract you sign, say you got a you know a book deal from one of the big five, and you have to let's say you know five years they want three books out of you or something, but just mm-hmm. all the rights that you can give up without even realizing it if you're a first time author, like you know mm-hmm. it's your first book and your first book deal, and you're like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, sure you can have my international rights, you can have my movie rights. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I just want to get my paltry whatever amount of. Uh, advance they give me and i'm like i got a book deal and then a lot of those people just end up bitching and complaining about oh this deal sucks ass just like the music industry did for so long caleb i tell you i am shocked at the amount of writers i've spoken to that didn't have a lawyer go over their contract i'm shocked like they're so happy to get it they don't want to be difficult to work with maybe they wanted to negotiate a little bit and they got pushed back and they didn't want to be that person but i know people that have given up you know film and tv rights and that's where you're that's the only way you're going to make money yeah, on a, on a property in the long run is you know film or TV rights, and those books are floating around forever. And you know who you never know who's going to dig one out, but they're just like, well, that's a long shot. I'm like, yeah. And if your long shot comes in and you're not getting anything, like what's what's unless they're actively shopping around trying to sell the film or TV rights for you, mm-hmm. uh, which some companies do. They have you know book divisions and they can package and that's fine. They just they didn't push back at all. They didn't have you know they had like friend's sister looked at it who you know maybe it was a paralegal or something. And it's just shocking. Like I've, I've paid money to have a lawyer look at every single one of my contracts because God forbid, you know, your, uh, your lottery ticket come in and you don't know, you've already signed the money away. A lot of emerging writers are really scared that that contract's just going to get pulled away from them and they're just going to end up with nothing because that's, you know, when you're first coming up, it just seems like everything is so fragile. It's like, oh, I to- mm-hmm. it took me so long to get an agent, and oh, it took absolutely. me so long to get my book in the hands of a publisher, and finally when it gets there, I'm just going to risk them taking it away and just being, no. Yeah. So, but you, you have to be more hard-nosed than that. Like you said, you just have to, pay, you have to pay to get have some, like an actual lawyer go over, because they use that legalese that's just indecipherable for most people, right. and you'll just get fucked in the end is basically what will happen, because they yeah. don't want to mm-hmm. pay you. That's not. And if you're going to get fucked, at least know what you're getting fucked for and what you're getting fucked over for, right? (laughs) I mean, you got to know. You got to (laughs) know what's in there. At least know where to put the lube. You know. Yeah. Contracts are only worth as much money as you're willing to spend to enforce them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the, I want to do a segment one day where we get past authors on and they just all complain about some bad deals they yeah. got. <laughs> so I've talked to a lot by now. Just uh, it's like, why did I sign well, that? You know, in, the, in the movie business, you know, they, you know, especially on the indie world, they're like, well, yeah, you're doing this one for next to nothing, but you're gonna make your money on your next one. Mm-hmm. It's like, motherfucker, it took me 15 years to get this one. I don't, yeah. You know. That that second one is not going to be as easy or easier. So it's uh, but you know, it all, it all depends on what you're consider a write off. You know yourself and you know opportunities. That is where AI has the human race uh, on the ropes. There is it's going to be alive while we like we die yeah. <laughs> unless you know a solar flare blows up the whole system. A writer only has a finite lifespan. AI as long as computers are around and the technology and people pushing it is around uh it could just go on forever so it'll outlive us most likely so that's like a dystopian world that we have to look forward to yeah or at <laughs> if least we make it that far children's children you know oh the robots yeah. write all the books now yay anyway again your current book <laughs> yeah. nsfw happy monday <laughs> happy mondays and we're like 40 something minutes yeah. into this so how did this book come to be? Because this one's like more experimental, more than oh, the fountain, right? definitely more experimental. Okay. Um, in, uh, yeah, in shape and I think in content a little bit. Actually, I was, uh, I might have to, oh, I got the loud battery warning. Can we pause for a second? Sure. Yeah. Uh, how did Not Safer Work came about? Pure panic. Uh, Miette had bought the fountain. Uh, I was working on a different project at the time and had that thought that, oh, she may actually want to work with me again and publish a second book, which I don't have. So I panicked my way through 30,000 words on another project. And then I started seeing these articles about uh, social media moderators having PTSD from their jobs, you know, make a minimum wage, no health care benefits. And uh, I think that was the time we probably had, you know, a bunch more school shootings and stuff. So there was a lot of gun, gun violence going on. And I was like, wow, okay, I could do a mute cute over beheading videos and kind of just take this social media and digital agenda thing that we're all being bombarded with and misinformation and stuff and run with that and see what happens. And it clicked and it really worked because during the pandemic, everybody's doom scrolling and you're at home going through looking at all the, you know, this article, this, and always, you know, hit another viewpoint opposite here and there. Just like, how do you find balance in that? And how do you keep from spiraling down? So essentially this, uh, not safe for work, uh, NSFW ended up being a love story, like love in the age of trauma. And the two main characters are uh, trying to make it through their first 90 days to get healthcare benefits and a mystery bonus. And that's the, you know, that's the top level plot thing. There's, you know, other agendas and, you know, some uh, secret stuff that pops up, plays on a broader, uh, broader canvas. But originally it was kind of like, I wanted to see how two people could have a relationship in the middle of all that, uh, all that garbage. Well, especially when you consider that in a world where you are basically numb to everything because there's so much bad news, there's so much horrible violence and just anything you could think of when you become numb like that to find a, an emotional connection with another person i think that would be really hard you know so i would really be interested to see how you unfold that love story there because it's like you would have characters who would i, I mean i'm not gonna put words in your mouth but i would imagine would have right. trouble connecting and have to overcome that lack of emotion they would have to do their day job especially when they're struggling with ptsd and i can because i think there was a david foster wallace short story i can't remember uh, the name of it, but I think there was a character in there who 
had like a job where the almost like an NSA type of deal, but all they did was watch the most terrible videos that are on the internet. Right, right, right. And this is like probably 2000 or something. So I couldn't even imagine yeah, how much yeah. more now yeah, like right. if you had to be a social media moderator. Moderator, that'd be terrible. Well, it kind of reminds me of that episode of South Park whenever Butter gets hired to read all of Cartman's like bad social media so he doesn't have to. And then it's like Demi Lovato and um, uh, what's this, the, the, the fat uh, uh, karate guy. Uh, what's karate guy. Uh, what's this, um, who used to do all the like one of the old like 80 guys. That's uh, so, not Salone, but um, uh, John Claude Van Damme. No, no, the uh, Steven Seagal. Yes, Seagal. Yeah, it's a Nikito master, not karate. Oh, whatever. He doesn't know anything. Fucking classless mook. Oh god. But like, butter gets sick <laughs> after like a couple yeah. of days of just going through all that nonsense. I mean, I do that just yeah. on t- Twitter. The bad news feed I get oh, recommended yeah. to me. I don't follow any of this stuff. And I'm just like, I can't even, I don't even use the app barely because of that. Yeah. It's just horrible. Well, you know, the book kind of plays in that, like, you know, it's a lot of factoids are thrown in here and there. And, you know, you flip through the book, you can see that it's a, it's a quick read because there's a lot of white space, but it's like really, really punchy, you know, with the character stuff and then the stuff they're seeing. And I, I went out of my way to make sure that it wasn't super graphic. Right. Like, I don't need the nuance of it. I can just say, you know, thing in the microwave. Right. And your imagination takes over. I don't need to go, you know, d- detail by detail because that is part of the, uh, the process of them getting numb to it. And as I think we are. And it's like, how do you like you said, how do you what's an emotional connection like look like when every day or, you know, one of their pod mates, you know, sells Xanax. They do all sorts of, you know, crazy, you know, in the in the office sex and other stuff it's not like titillating sex it's really just like cathartic are we both on the same rock at the same moment we're gonna die it's like that you know post-funeral sex right Mm -hmm. it's just that affirmation that we're still alive and have a little bit of distraction not that i go to a lot of funerals for post-funeral sex but that's just what came out of my head are you a secret funeral Um, crasher (laughs) (laughs) i've crashed one wedding but i'm not crashing Uh, i saw somebody post that like for uh for a hundred bucks you would pay her she would go stand in a uh black trench coat and sunglasses and a black umbrella at the edge of the of uh, your funeral so people would suspect you had a secret life i thought that was pretty funny i always like that idea that's always good actually in japan they do have people that you pay just to go to your funeral for you and do stuff like that i would i would love to do that job just stand there looking menacingly just like you know right. tommy gun or something like what the fuck what was he into that guy making sure he's really dead or what is he even in right, the casket right. or did he fake his own death right People constantly touching their ear, talking into the wrist. Yeah. Are we in the Matrix Didn't now? What happened? <laughs> yeah, speaking of trench coat guys, I would imagine in like the scenario for your story, when you have these people who are not defunct of emotions, but you know, they're having trouble connecting. When you get things sure. like school shootings, for instance become so mundane which is sadly our real life now it's getting that way what would be at one point i mean you just think of columbine at one point would have been a world-changing event and you know a national tragedy now it happens like every week or something and so we actually can see in real time what it is like Mm -hmm. to become uh desensitized to these kind of things and i am really interested in just how you would go about writing a character that because I mean, you don't want to like Gen Z, for instance, you don't want to just categorize it and lump them all into one thing. But the way they talk and the way they act, it's very specific to their time. And, you know, the technology mm-hmm. that they're bombarded with and the social media. Because I, w- I watched a reel 
or something where uh, some Gen Z kid was like, why do millennials talk so slow? And it's like, because we didn't have, you know, three 30 second videos that mm. we had to get a message across and right. a certain amount of characters we had to get a message across in. But so when you have like these kind of spelling words, <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's a roundabout way of asking, how did you go about writing these characters? Like, did you really just have to watch people and just try to imagine what it's like to live that kind of life or what? Uh, no, I mean, the, the the cheat code on that is the main character at Savage is uh, is Gen X because he, you know, and it feels like a little bit like a man at a time because like he says, you know, he lived uh, pre-video games, post-video games pre 9-11, post 9-11, pre-internet, post-internet, right? So we've seen the culture change significantly, you know, before and after, and after was not always, you know, was not always for the better. So I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I represent Gen Z or, you know, some millennial, older millennials in it had dug it, but it's really from that perspective of somebody that has seen both sides of the coin and has lived both sides of the coin and seeing where we're going now is like that, that vanishing point we're going to hit and it's it's not going to be pretty and i'll not a big spoiler in here but the book there's a russian component that rears its head in the book and when i was writing it a couple of years ago i thought how passe but that's okay because i grew up in the you know cold war so you know i pulled out russia as an old chestnut and look at us now i was <laughs> i was, when I was old in negotiations with a russian publisher for the fountain when the war broke out and I was like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. Mm. Like now the Russians are rearing their ugly head, like, holy shit. And there's a, there's an event in the, uh, in the book, not on some, not unlike, uh, what's happened with Israel and Hamas. I'm just like, fuck, right. Like, you know, you can only be ahead of the curve so long before you catch up to it. And it's just the, the line between satire and, fiction is so thin now and now it's like it's such a it's such a blur like you got the, the shit we were joking about michael jackson you know ai doing doing you know edgar Allan poe dude 18 months from now i guarantee you yeah somebody's gonna do you know him reciting the raven if it's and not it's, done already yeah, might yeah be worse. it's not already done right it's 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 crazy how how the unimaginable or, you know, what seems so bizarre and abstract is like, we're headed there. And that's, you know, and it's scary. It's hard to write something original now set in the real world because you don't know when your fiction will become reality. Yeah. Like our buddy Nicholas Obergon, his third novel is set during the Tokyo Olympics. And as soon as the novel came out, COVID happened and they pushed the Olympics like a year or two or whatever mm -hmm. they did. So he's right. like, my whole novel's fucked. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <"Great." laughs> fucking worldwide epidemic, yeah. you fucking piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I said, you know, not so forward because in the near future, there's also a, a pre-hack and a post-hack, which is really explain. Yeah. Some of those things that you, because I was, I was talking to this other guy, like when I'm working on a book like this, which is set in the near future, I read a lot of, I read a lot of white papers. I read a lot of dissertations. I read a lot of, you know, Wired. I was Technica. I'm on Reddit. I'm reading about the stuff that, you know, people have been screaming about 10, 15, 20 years ago are now kind of hitting that tipping point. And you can kind of see the momentum and the next thing that's, you know, around the corner. Because, mm. you know, by the time it's on mainstream news, forget about it. You know, it's just a, it's a PR release and, you know, it's, it's, it's already passed you by, right? Yeah. 
Well, I, li- I like the way you went about doing the Gen X thing because that creates a more nuanced character versus if, I mean, it's hard to have an objective character if they only live through one side of an event. So if you had, right. if you wrote that story with just like the Gen Z generation, they wouldn't understand, like you said, what it was like before 9-11, what it was like before right. the internet. They would, they wouldn't have that perspective so you definitely could tell a more nuanced and more interesting story that way. But I worry, like, what's going to happen in the next 15, 20 years when we don't have so many writers who are able to write from experience from the other you know, side? Because eventually uh, the new generation is going to catch up where they're the old heads. And then right, right, right. <laughs> like we're going to get where they're trying to have writing from their time period. And then the new kids, who the fuck knows what they're going to be into. And it's just, uh, well, I tell you what, I, uh, I've got my rig set up here. I've got this, all this classic sci-fi behind me, you know, 90% which I haven't read. I just like buying books and putting them on a shelf because it looks pretty. I had read, I, when I did before that, I did not say for work. I read like 1984, I skimmed Brave New World, et cetera, that years ago. Clockwork Orange, like I went read back all the dystopian classics, right? Just to see like what made them what made them tick, right? Because they were they were of them own selves, of them own selves. They were the, the anyway, they were singular, and uh, and I've totally lost the thread. There's the brain fart number one. What am I talking about? Oh, all right. Now we're into so the episode, it, and you forgot. It's not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> it gets better than yeah, what yeah. we usually yeah, get. <laughs> I was reading J.G. Ballard, who, you know, wrote Empire of the Sun, uh, Crash, you know, these books, you know, they, these were turned into movies. So these ones, you know, um, I was reading his book of short stories and one of them uh, was published in 1962. And a guy comes home from work and he's tripping over boxes that are like in the front foyer area that some delivery bot has dropped off. He doesn't know what the fuck is in them. The, uh, his wife says she wants a third wall TV. And, you know, he's like, we already have two and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I just tripped over a fucking Amazon box. <laughs> and, you know, we just had to put a TV in my kid's room because otherwise I'm going to lose the living room TV to the PlayStation. And this was 1962. So, you know, he didn't know everything. But, man, there was a lot in there that was very recognizable from, you know, 60 years ago. So it'll be interesting. You say, like, what's going to what is science fiction going to look like in 60 years? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, will somebody, you know, read something like, wow, they really kind of nailed it back then. So I don't know, but I, that's, it's fun for me to go back and read old sci-fi by smart writers that aren't just doing the pulp stuff to kind of see where they think things are going to go and see how close they are. And man, there are like, you can see the points of divergence where we kept going down this road or like, oh, we didn't quite go that way, but you know. It's uh, so, it's kind of frightening and scary, you know. See, I I had that uh that same experience a few years ago. I went on a uh HG Wells uh mini like I hit like I hit the four like big like uh the Invisible sure. Man um uh Time Machine Time Machine the War of the Worlds and then the Doctor of uh, Dro right. and like all those were like I was surprised on how well they were and like the, like the actual science because like he actually knew his stuff back then like he like studied right. a lot of yeah. science you know like studies and 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 stuff like that and and it was interesting to just to see like that aspect of of what science fiction was at like the turn of the century right you right. know that was that was a pretty cool thing 
Now, did you, did, uh, obviously they're outdated, but did you think there was enough meat in there that you're like, holy shit? Like, I, yeah, I, the the only one I didn't really like was the time, the time machine. I, it was just, it was weirdly written for me, but all the other ones, like I, I really like those ones. And I was, then I, I was like really surprised about the Island of Dr. Moreau of just how like, just like weird and uh, visceral, some of like the with like the the animal people and mm. stuff like that was mm-hmm. like I wasn't expecting that out of you know out of you know out of his work. That was like the last thing that I read, and it was like that right. really caught me off guard. I was like, oh well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, something yeah. that's very very old. Yeah. That you know what that actually brings up something that tickles my brain stem because you were talking about how you know what imagine what sci fi will be like in the future. Imagine what sci-fi will be like when, assuming mankind's able to get their shit together enough for us to traverse the stars, have AI that actually functions the way it was meant to be, which is to help humans not overtake us and Terminators and stuff. And Mm -hmm. I was just trying to think, like, what would you be able to write about if we're already doing all the cool shit we always imagine? Like, that would be hard. I don't know if there'd be a sci-fi genre anymore. Uh, I think they'd be all time travel. People would be writing about, uh, you know, going back to medieval times, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> but what if time travel bec- ex- like becomes a thing? Then what? I don't yeah. know. And then, and then yeah, you know, you've got, you know, these, you know, like Stephen Baxter does hard, hard science and, you know, like fourth dimension, you know, scope and scale where as a, as a narrative, it's amazing, but not necessarily entertaining, right? Because mm. it just gets too bizarre. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see what becomes, you know, I guess it'll always come back to relation, human relationships, right? Well, right now, sci-fi has seemed to have gone down a hard sci-fi road where realism is very important. You think of, uh, like, Nolan's Interstellar. You think of The Martian. A lot of the works that are getting... I mean, they're still fantastical mm-hmm. stuff, but a lot of them right. are really based in things... Like, they want it to be something that could happen or that you could imagine this is right. real versus the fantasy of yesteryear where it's like, let's just right. have fun and see what the fuck we could come up with. Right, right. Yeah, it'll and it'll be interesting, especially, you know, because you're talking 40, 50 years from now, like, you know, can they, what, what role will AI play in that too, you know, in terms of the writing and stuff? Because, you know, we're, we're the age, you know, when AI first came up, you know, we were all screaming, Skynet, has nobody seen Terminator? <laughs> Skynet, what are you doing? Every scientist needs to watch Terminator because we're running around Skynet t-shirts 20 years ago. <laughs> like, I think they're wow. using that as the blueprint. Like, they, <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, let's <laughs> no make shit, Skynet. Right? We want <laughs> How do we get to that point now? That seems like they make a lot yeah. of money. <laughs> like the Matrix universe is kind of hard and using humans as batteries is actually inefficient, but we can enslave everybody mm. with the robots and, you know, Skynet's not a bad thing. Um, I don't mind a Skynet yeah. universe, honestly. It's like, just take me out. I'd rather go quickly if I can. <laughs> yeah. That's my that's my goal. If we ever have some kind of abomination take over the world, I'd rather just be like on the first wave. You know, if uh, it's like if the bomb ever dropped, I wanted to be on my house. Yeah, <laughs> just, just take me out. I don't want to be like on the fringe, living in the woods, and you know, like like the the road. I don't want to be yeah. eating dirt out of a can and. Having cannibals come after me, I don't want to deal with that. That's a lot of work. Well, it's, it's funny seeing it, seeing you know the younger generations like, look, we're fucked. If this happens, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be one of the first wave people that dies because I can't build a fire. I don't know how to cook. I don't know. It's like, yeah, I'm just not gonna worry about it because I'll just deal with it then. <laughs> I, I love that. Added, you, know, you got preppers, you know, with bunkers and food and stuff. And I get it. I mean, I'm, we're in, we're in California, so we're you know we're set for you know, 90 days or three weeks, you know, if it's, if it's, we got to bug out or if we've got an earthquake where we've got to have, you know, 
food and, you know, power and stuff like that. We're set. But yeah, it's like, we're not set up for, you know, the dystopian <laughs> you know, zombie apocalypse. Like, yeah, shit. I was like, why would you want to survive that? that right. I, I just love that attitude, though. Just, oh, things got hard. I'm just going to go lay down and die now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to go die. Game over, man. Well, I tell you what, when we get close to that, uh, weed will be legal in every state. I would hope so. <laughs> we can't do anything else, but here's your uh, here's your uh, monthly allotment of government weed, right? <laughs> I don't know what kind of universe that would be when it's like you know things are bad when the government's like just, 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 just handing it out, please. Yeah. This will be fighting to privatize it and everything else. Which, uh, well, we've we've yeah. breached the hour mark. Though I do like the dystopian yeah. talk. We need more guests to come on and just talk about dystopian hellscapes because that's a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> especially when it's like something that might actually happen yeah. sooner than later. But where can the fans go and find... And I say fans because they're going to be fans of yours after this. Where can they go to read your work, buy your books? Let's uh, throw some social media links in there too. All right. I'm on IG at david.scott dot hey dot official which is a bit bleh, much bigger mouthful than <laughs> saying it out loud that's a lot of <laughs> dots yeah. hey official with the dots in there see, they used to be called periods but now they're dots you see yeah. hashtags used to be pound signs see how language and symbols are transforming you can buy not safe for work nsfw uh at whiskeytit.com and just look for my books uh if you do uh, a code you do ds yay B-S-Y-A-Y. I'll get you 30% off both my books. Nice. Oh, nice. Interested in that. Uh, that's me. I'm not on uh, I'm not on Twitter X. You know, what's funny is I almost included the X app in Not Safe for Work because I knew Elon was working on a super app and that he was probably going to end up buying Twitter to do that. And I just like, fuck him. He doesn't need any more. Yeah. So I cut it. I cut it. And when they announced it, I was like, oh, can you believe this? I was like, yeah, this, has been the year. this has been the work for years. <laughs> years. He wants a Wii app. He wants an American version of Wii app. Oh. That's who he's trying to compete with. Wonderful. But anyway. What a guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, we thank you for coming on. That was fun. Um, hey, thanks, Caleb. Since we was a blast. Yeah. Yeah, next Shooting time I'll, the shit, man. Love it. Next time I'll try not to be so hungover. Um, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's the drunk. That's the that's kind of our excuse. It's the, it's in the name. So, yeah. uh, but usually right. we do the drinking on the show, not before the show. Sometimes before the show. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it doesn't really matter anymore. Well, I'm on the whiskey tit label, so I mean, yeah. there you go. Right, yeah. it's perfect fit. Yeah, that's what that's what I thought yeah. when uh, they reached. Uh, Tarina reached out to me. I was like, whiskey tit. I was like, well, I actually submitted to them, so I knew of Whiskey Tit, but I, I never really thought of the name too much. I thought it was just a cool name. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. That is a good fit. Yeah. It's like match made in, well, I wouldn't say heaven. Um, you can follow us at DPW Podcast on social media. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that X. I don't want to. Yeah. I'm not promoting it. Uh, you can just Google. That's the easiest way. We yeah. come up on everything. Uh, Spencer's only fans this week. What are you, the Boston Bean Baker? Baker, yeah. That's like kind of wholesome. Yeah. Making beans. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're what you're doing on there. People pay for that, huh? Yeah. Pay for a lot of weird things these days. They do. Uh, they don't I've pay seen me. on PBS. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we thank you for listening, and we will catch you next week.
Hey, Caleb, you wanted to see me? Ah, Spencer, my good fellow. I've been expecting you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so did you want something or... Want? Goodness, no. Require. Require? Yes. I require your services for the briefest of moments. Okay. Surely you can see the predicament I'm in. Well, actually, no, I can't. I lost my glasses at the pub last night. A pub, you say? Surely you can't be serious. As serious as a fart during a recto, because I am. And stop calling me Shirley. Rightio. Anyway, if your spectacles were affixed upon your face, you'd see that I, the host of the most prodigious writing and books podcast in the business, has been immobilized by a rather substantial stack of fallen folios. What? My to-read pile finally fell on me while I was taking a nap. But you're on a podcast table. I hardly see how that matters. And you're naked! I hardly see how that matters. Dude, your hairy ass is touching my drink coaster. I hardly see how that matters. It matters to me! Can you just unbury me? No way! Your reckless reading got you into this mess. Blockhead! Wait! Don't go! There's a copy of War and Peace wedged in my taint! Spencer! Can you at least leave me a bottle of whiskey? Hello? Can't get enough drunken nonsense? Listen to new episodes of the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast every Tuesday wherever you get your pods.